Welcome to Lead Today with me, Kalina. Let's talk leadership. Welcome to a very special episode of the Lead Today show. I am pleased to welcome in Tammy Peterson, who was raised in a small town in northern Alberta. After graduating from high school in 1979, she moved to central Canada, where she worked, studied, and was married in 1989. She lived for many years in Boston and Montreal, but now resides in Toronto. Tammy raised two children with her husband, Jordan, and has two grandchildren whom she adores. Tammy attended university in the early 80s, studying kinesiology and graduating with a Bachelor of Science. She owned and operated a massage therapist business off and on for 30 years. She has taught Hatha Yoga and continues to practice Hatha and Kundalini Yoga on her own. Tammy has extensive experience in home renovation, having worked as a contractor to renovate their home in Toronto. She also spent three years working as a logistics consultant for her husband, Jordan, organizing his daily itinerary on his sold-out worldwide book tour. They travel the world, giving talks in 140 cities throughout the United States, Canada, the UK, the Scandinavian countries, Spain, Portugal, Australia, and New Zealand, to name a few. Most recently, in 2019, she suffered and recovered from a near-fatal illness. This experience changed and deepened her understanding of how life should be lived. Please join me in welcoming to the show, Tammy Peterson. Wow, it really is a privilege. Like I said, driving, I spent three hours really almost feeling like I was in your head because I was listening to all of these other episodes that you had done. You mentioned oneness, so coming back to oneness. Um, And I I was just curious, I know it's maybe not the simplest question, but why are we here? Could you expand upon that? Because I found that so profound. Sure. And uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation. This is, this is, uh, this will do it. This is going to be fun. So I think, you know, and you know, I'm not a, I'm not an intellectual. I'm not. Uh, I, I, when I read, I think about it, you know, but I'm not a big philosopher of any sorts. And I didn't study philosophy. I studied sciences, right? Um, but I've done yoga for years and years. So in that way, I was philosophizing. I was spiritual. And just, I don't know, this year I came to this idea, and I've read it since, and different people have said it since, that we are, when we're in the womb, we're one with our higher power. You know, we're, and you can tell that when you look at a baby, they look like they are complete right when they're inside it's just there's this peace in there it's, it's peace and serenity and when you come out you scream and then here you are in the world looking for that that you had at the beginning i think that we are looking for that and but the only way to find it is to let go of the world Right? Let go of your expectations, let go of uh, the control or, or needing to fix everything and listen to your higher power and to see what it is for that day is most important. And so it's good to simplify it back to the 24 hours because otherwise it's just like, what? It's too profound, right? But 24 hours and say if it's a really, you know, time of difficulty 
the next minute, the next hour. And so you constantly are reflecting back to your breath, right? So you constantly reflect back to your breath because God is in between the words. And uh, I read when I first read that, I didn't understand it, but I think I do now. I, I, um, I've spent a lot more time praying and listening to God and asking for asking for his will and so then when I start my day and something happens I see it as his will and that's a oneness right because I am I'm seeing a reflection of what I need back in the world as it happens now if you're going to be talking about the past or you can plan for the future you know you can definitely plan for the future but you have to live in the present you have to live right here right at the moment and notice where you are and what's going on around you to see if you're on the right path or not and you can tell that because if there's uh and then if there's a challenge then i i also think that that's something that's given to me that challenge is given to me and it's a an opportunity for me to um find oneness with this person that I'm having the conflict with or this place or this thing that I'm having a conflict with. And if I can calm myself down, breathe, be present and respond rather than react, then maybe I can maintain that oneness. And uh, yeah, so that's my initial thoughts on that. I love it so much there, the breath. It's really powerful. You mentioned that and staying present, reflection as well. Really great points around self-reflection. It's so easy to be externally focused. Mm-hmm. That's right. I'm, I'm very curious also about how then, I, I don't know if it's the same answer, but how you would handle resentment in particular. The, the cure to resentment, because I in, in the discussion, you know, there's this idea of being humble and humbled through art. And then there's a but there's this resentment that can happen if we're not pursuing whatever our, our calling is or our destiny is. And I, that's something that I think is present for me right now. I'm newly married. And so I'm actually getting married again this Saturday in Switzerland with my husband's Swiss family. And I, but I am finding already in just the beginnings of my marriage, I don't have kids yet, but I, I already feel sometimes that I'm in my head having this dialogue of being this sacrificial you know, whatever he needs for his career or his work. And it's really easy for me to, even though I have my own business and I'm focused on what I'm doing, but it's very easy for me to go to that place. And then I start feeling resentment and it's good that I I think notice it, but yes, that's the first step. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I'm wondering how to make sure that I don't go there and let that sort of inform how I act because I don't always catch it in the moment like you said to be very present I'm not usually catching it in the moment I'm often catching it after saying oh you know I did that I really didn't want to so I wonder how I can get better at releasing the resentment but also perhaps not allowing it to occur in the first place Mm -hmm. yeah well that's that's a great idea to do that because resentment will kill your marriage it'll it'll kill it so you don't want any of that 
And what, what is resentment? It's anger that's, that's kept over time, right? So it's not momentary anger. It's anger that is kept um, in your mind and, and, and you rethink it. And, um, and you have to wonder why, why you're doing that because there's different reasons for it. So say, um, say you're um, at home, um, you're getting dinner ready and your husband is supposed to be coming home for dinner and uh, you're feeling uh, some um, discomfort around the fact that you're the one in the kitchen, right? Now, this is something when he gets there to discuss with him, right? It's to, you discuss it with him. You say, hmm, you know, I'm having uh, a bit of discomfort while I'm in the kitchen when, you know, before you come home, uh, let's discuss this. And then you have to decide if you've negotiated who's going to be in the kitchen, who's going to get the groceries, who's going to walk the dog, who's going to answer uh, the financial, you know, pro um, the financial decisions, you know, and a lot of this will be done with both of you, but there's only so much time in the day, so you're going to want to negotiate who does what. And because we live in a modern world, the the roles aren't set in stone anymore. And so we have to negotiate everything. Who's going to make the bed? We have to negotiate everything. And the thing is, once you've negotiated and made a decision, then you don't have to talk about it. Well, say, you know, for a month, maybe you'll have to talk about it again in a month. But if you find any resentment uh, and it's something that you can't discuss with someone, like you don't want to discuss this with someone because you're embarrassed that you even have this resentment, which can, you know, be, that can happen lots of times. What I do and I found is helpful is um, I'll think about the person or the place or the thing, whatever it is I'm resentful about, and I'll write a gratitude list for them. So I'll, I'll see them as they are as a whole, rather than who they are that bothers me. Because I'm only seeing the, a very, you know, small uh, moment in their lives. I'm not seeing them as that whole that we were talking about at the beginning. So you write a gratitude list, you can see them more as a whole. And I have found that that actually lifts gratitude. I mean, lifts resentment quite quickly now uh you know you have to be constantly praying for this that you want this lifted that you don't want to be resentful and you're willing to look at yourself uh, you know in any way to try to um, lift yourself out of this and so then you have that's when you become aware so you said you're becoming aware after you've done it. That's the first step of awareness. And it, that is what happens is you do it and you think, did it again. You know, there I am again, doing that same thing. Wonder what that is. Wonder what that is. And that's, that's a great self-reflection. And so what you're hoping for is that when you have the thought, you stop yourself and yeah. you listen instead of responding. Right. But that'll come because it takes time to get good at these things. And so we have to be gentle with ourselves and recognize that 
becoming aware is a huge step. Becoming aware of it is a huge step. And so you want to uh, try to bring that to the present. But I would say that takes months and months and months to get yeah. good at it. It's, it. it's a long process, but definitely worthwhile. Definitely. Yeah, I, I love that people talk about gratitude journals and things, but this is a very specific instance of that that I think is probably challenging in the moment when you're just frustrated with the person. But I, I can see how the opposite of it would sort of cure it in a sense. And you mentioned the word gentle. And I'm really curious about that word because you do have a very gentle, soothing presence. And I'm curious about how you do that because it must be internal fact that you exude it so strongly outwardly how do you bring forward I would say gentleness and grace really that's a good question so um when you start out becoming aware you're doing that on your own probably right so you're thinking about it and you're not sharing that exactly but if you want to make a change in uh, when you're in the moment of that resentment, if there's someone that you know who you trust, who can listen and who's not going to judge. And, you know, this is, this is like a, a religious person. This is like, a, this is confession, you know, this, so that this is what, where it used to happen always with confession. So you're looking for someone who has that same uh, intention and you tell them what's going on and how you're feeling. And doing that, you're bringing it out into the world. You're bringing out who you are in all of its uh, frustration into the world. That's a humble experience because you're admitting that you are uh, arrogant or you're admitting that you're full of pride. And, you know, you, so you're admitting this not gentle person. You're admitting that you're not that gentle person, but accepting that that is part of you and that power that you get from all of those, I shouldn't say power because that's so politicized now, but um, that uh, courage that you have when you're aggressive, you, but you, you, so you want to like my husband would say, you want to have that sword, but you want to have it sheathed, right? So you want, and I think what he means by that is you want to have acceptance that you are that person and, and gratitude for having that force in you, but it has to be used properly. So you want to share when it's not being used properly. You want to share that with someone you trust. At that time, you're sharing that also with your higher power. So you're, you know, you're putting it into the world, which means that um, you know it deep in your soul now that someone else in the world knows this too. And then you can get feedback from the person, but you can also just get, you know, when you say something out loud, all of a sudden it makes more sense than when it's in your head. Why yeah. is that? Why is that? Isn't that kind of, miraculous you know that you that you have to share so all these podcasts and all this stuff that's going on with people speaking one-to-one -one, 
I think is, is bringing that um, confession that we used to have in the church and sometimes still do, but not as much uh, into everyday life. And I think that's the power of the podcast is that these things that we're saying to one another are making, um, they're bringing, uh, uh, it's not judgment, but uh, discernment, you know, that, that I have to be careful with what I say, because I'm trying to say something that's truthful to you. And that is, uh, that's where we all want to be. We don't want to be hiding behind our fears and our inadequacies and pretending we're something we're not. So when I was on that tour with my husband and I was doing all the work that he was, uh, that was required, but questioning myself, I could just feel that there was something else that was necessary or there was something else. I don't know. I didn't know. It was just, that wasn't, what was I doing there? That was my only question. What am I doing here every day, sitting in a theater, listening to a talk, hanging around after going home? Like, what am I doing? (laughs) And, um, and then I had all those profound, you know, then I was ill and then I, breathed in all those prayers from all those people. And I realized, oh, wow. Wow, I had no, like, obviously I had no idea where I was. Uh, but not knowing where I was didn't stop me from doing what I was doing. And so it was good to stay in the moment and do what you're doing, even if you have doubts, because it will come clear if you give it time. It will come clear. Even something as crazy as, you know, having a near-death experience, it'll, it'll become clear. But you have to allow it to come clear in its own time. Hmm. Yeah. I so that's a long answer for resentment. It's a, it's a brilliant answer. And so we have, it's a brilliant answer. There's sort of a solution in there and all, all sorts of things. You mentioned, you've talked about this before as well, which I find fascinating. You said, you know, why is it so focused? Why is it so strong when we say it out loud? And, and before you, in another show, you also mentioned this idea of going from 4D to 3D. So this idea when you're when you're praying and you mentioned that you pray out loud and the, the mm-hmm. fact that there is some level of... So what do you think that is? I mean, for me, simplistically, I'd say, okay, it's because you're putting your inward, you're kind of taking that energy, that higher energy, and you're, you are the channel, if you will, or the force that's putting it out there. So somehow there's an energetic kind of thing going on. But I wonder if that's too simplistic. What do you think is going on there when we go from kind of that fourth dimension or hearing what God's having to say and then bringing it through in our our words or 3D, as you would say? Right. Well, you know, I started reading the rosary when I was ill and uh, and I had the history of meditation already and chanting. And so I'd done a lot of chanting through Kundalini yoga for years before. So when I started praying the rosary, I realized that there was, uh, that you were breathing, you were speaking through the exhalation, right? So you're speaking through the exhalation and that the rosary is set up so that you can speak uh, right through the stanza you can right through right through and then breathe again and so the whole thing is set up so 
Well, you know, when people, if you breathe, if you recite the rosary of someone uh, who's done it for a very long time or who has the tradition in the church, it's a, it's a, they do it in kind of a song, you know, that, so it is a chant. And we've, in our Western way, we've looked to the East for this chanting and this um, embodiment with God. But we have that in our own tradition, in the Western tradition. We, and you know, I left it too. I, I studied yoga when I was 13 and I left the West, the Western Christianity behind, right? I, um, you know, I had grandmothers who were religious. Uh, so I had a little bit of that still in my life, but I really did take on um, yoga as my um, way of reaching into the fourth dimension. And it was good. It was definitely good. But I did find when I was ill, uh, going back to my tradition that I'd had from the time I was really little, what I was born with. And, you know, my grandmother, although she became a Protestant, she had Protestant religion, she, she was Polish and they had been Catholic and she changed our religion. So we had been more in steeped in the rituals, the rituals of the church, because the, uh, the Catholics, you know, as, as the Protestants and all of the other denominations have moved away from Catholicism, a lot of the rituals have gone too. And it's those rituals, it's the rituals actually <laughs> that keep us present in the moment with our higher power. And so that, you know, leaving it behind uh, starts to, it's like taking something, you know, like yogurt, high fat yogurt and making it non-fat. <laughs> it it takes out all the goodness from it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, it's a, it's a great sort of metaphor for, I think, what we're doing to a lot of parts of life. Yeah. I think that's boundaries, having porous boundaries, definitely learning that from your family. And if it's not okay as a kid to say whatever you need, I think it's really, for me, it's been really easy to grow up and feel like I just have to say yes. I mean, it's probably not just a me, a me thing. I'm sure many people, um, but I can see it in my familial structure, you know, where it's like, just be helpful, just to be kind is to it's, it's almost missing the line of service, like you said. So I guess, what do you think being in service is? I still find it a very fine line, right? To say, because you're saying, hey, I, I'm doing something right now, but I do want to show up to you in service. How, how do you balance that? Or how, for example, with your art, how do you balance the fact that, hey, okay, art is, I'm so passionate about this. I care about this, but I'm also a mom and a grandmother and a wife. And I have all of these different, and a friend. I have all of these different roles. How do you balance that? Because I don't know that I am successfully doing that or I'm not sure what the formula is there. I'm, I found my way back to prayer also after my car accident. So I had a traumatic brain injury. And I, I really, that, that concussion was that moment for me where I just said, okay, that clearly what I'm doing is not working. So I need to clean this situation up. You can't be all things to everyone all the time. So how do you balance those branches of the tree or, or 
support those different roles that you have. I'm finding that challenging. Well, that's a good, that's a good uh, question. You know, when you're becoming aware of your reactions to other people, it's good to become also aware at how, um, if you want to do something for yourself, you want to write your manuscript, right? We're almost there. And, <laughs> well, it sounds like you've done a lot of work. So it sounds like you do carve out that time, that, that creative time for your own uh, for your own pursuit that is necessary, that brings that keeps you alive. So you have you have to do those things. Um, it's tricky because we grow, like you said, we grow up in families, and the messages aren't always clear about what we what we are what's expected of us. And we and we want to know from our parents. You know, I have this little guy; he's one years old. My my son's son, and he looks to me to see what it is, you know, that's okay for him to be doing. And so it's, and if, if I'm, if I'm wanting him to be there for me, rather than for me to be there for him, he's going to think that that's the way that life ought to be. So sometimes it starts way far back and it's no wonder we don't recognize that we're not doing what we need to do for ourselves. Uh, one thing that I noticed was, I, I noticed myself say no in my head when I wanted to sit down and do some art. I heard my, I heard it say, my mind say no. Uh, and I caught it, you know, I caught that and I shared it. I went to my husband, I said, okay, let's talk about this and brought it into the light so that it could be dealt with because that little no wasn't a little thing it was a well-practiced um, method of keeping me from what I wanted to do keeping myself from what I want to do and I think we may look to other people as reasons for us not getting done what we need to do but really at the end of it it's it's really up to us to make those decisions and make the space and make things work so if you're gonna there's no blaming other people for getting you in situations that you don't want to be in because if you're watching what you're doing you're allowing it to happen and that's a that's a rough thing to say because it means that everybody's responsible for where they end up and that's rough and uh, I can't imagine how rough and how difficult that is for some people so you want to be gentle with yourself and recognize that you wouldn't have got to this awareness if you ha if everything hadn't happened up till now. Because you wouldn't be who you are, right? So everything had to happen in a certain way to become who you are, to be aware, as aware as you are. So that means that all the things that you want to hold on to from the past, you have to let go. And you have to, you know, say thank you to, you have to at least accept, accept. maybe you don't say thank you, but you at least accept that that's the way it had to be and to, and to move forward from there and to know that, that you're okay being who you are with whatever bad habits you have, that that is who we are. It got us this far. And now gently we can 
work so that those bad habits turn into uh, things that work for us and work for other people. Yeah, it reminds me of the hero's journey with Joseph Campbell. It's almost a training that I did for, because I do leadership coaching and career coaching mainly. And so it, it talks about how essentially you can be a mentor for someone that's in the position you were in because you've been there. And so this idea of mentorship as a means of kind of not necessarily translating all of the pain, but one way to sort of use what you've learned from your struggle to benefit others, I suppose. And I, but this idea of letting go, I just read a book uh, by David Hawkins and uh, he's a, he was a psychologist. He's passed away, but it's called letting go actually. And his main thing is about allowing a fe feeling the feeling until it sort of peaks and then letting it subside sort of like a wave. Somehow this is related to resentment. I don't know. It's almost like you don't let that peak kind of subside. It's so oh, it's, you just keep going back to the peak and thinking and thinking and the rumination is really perhaps because you're uncomfortable. It makes you uncomfortable, right? Mm -hmm. So this as it's going up you're getting more and more uncomfortable and you've used ways maybe that's when you go for a walk maybe that's when you uh start bouncing a ball you know in a in a distracted way because you don't want to attend to this feeling that you're having and it's natural to want to uh, get rid of this uncomfortable feeling but we're not children anymore and so recognizing the uncomfortable feeling which is what a child what you'll see in your children because they're going to have uncomfortable feelings right yeah. at the beginning because they're just getting used to their feelings so they're going to make them very uncomfortable and they're going to be mirroring what you do so if you're somebody who can stay present with their uncomfortable feeling recognize that oh you know oh this is this is something that bothers me and I have no idea why. Hmm. And to just let it be, let it be until, until you get to the other side, because on the other side, then there will be a reflection that, that will teach you why, why it happened and what you need to do to not make, not have as high a crescendo next time. So little by little, then it gets to be smaller and smaller until until you find out, oh, that doesn't even bother me anymore. Right? Yeah. But you still might be somebody who's uh, got a, uh, a reactive. You might be reactive. And, and that's okay as long as you can recognize it and sit with it. Those feelings are okay to, I don't know, they, because they are in the present, these feelings, then you're sharing them with your higher power, right? You're sharing them and you're saying, look how I feel, look how I feel. What is this? And what do I need to do to move forward? And sometimes it'll take weeks of this uncomfortable feeling. So, you know, I think I may have shared that when my daughter had taken my husband to Europe, to a hospital in Europe, right? And I was left here with my son, like I wasn't alone, but we were worried for him. And 
we didn't know what was going to happen and we weren't there to help. Uh, that was a very tricky situation not to be frustrated and angry, right? Because we were afraid. We didn't know what was going to happen, if he was going to live or not. And I, my, my uh, son's wife is from Halifax, so, and it was COVID, and we needed to, they, well, they wanted to go visit and show their new son to her family. But we had to quarantine for two weeks. So I suggested, finally, you know, she'd been telling me that she was worried, but I wasn't listening, I guess. I wasn't being present. And then one day I was present with her when she said it. And I said, I can go with you. I said, I can go with you. We can quarantine together. Uh, I can rent a place for us to stay in for a couple of weeks. And they said, okay. And so... We went there. <laughs> it seemed so simple, but anyway, we went there. Uh, we quarantined in a beautiful place right by the ocean. It was just so lovely. And I was thinking about my husband and my daughter. And I was angry that my daughter had to take him away. And so there was resentment there. And I was like, oh, my goodness, there's resentment there. This is no good. And I spent that whole two weeks walking and meditating and trying to let it go. So I was telling my higher power, I am ready to let this go. Please show me a way to let this go. It's not useful. It's not going to help me. And eventually I did what I told you earlier. I wrote a gratitude list for her. And within... Like a couple of days, the resentment was gone. And it was a profound resentment. I mean, and it, and I was still in the middle. I didn't, still didn't know if he was going to live. And I was still trying to let go of any resentment that I might be feeling that would be blocking me from being in service the best way I could. Because we were in such a precarious situation that if you were going to be having ulterior motives, who knows what that would do? And, and how that would go and how it would turn out. So you, you just got to be so straight sometimes, all the time, but you got to be so straight so that you don't warp reality. You don't want to warp reality. You want to be straight with it. And you recognize when you're not going to be straight, except that you're <laughs> not straight, realize that you've come to a place where you don't need that anymore and you want to let it go. So you ask your higher power to let it go and wait for that to happen and be aware of what's happening so that you can be uh, a present and, and maybe get an idea of how to let it go. It's not obvious. It's really not obvious. So it's a, it's a tricky undertaking. Absolutely. Especially in, in a life threatening situation. I mean, it's not, I think biologically we're, we're looking out for threats. And if there is indeed a decently serious threat, you're, it's, I think, difficult to come to that place of peace, inner inner peace or finding, reckoning with that feeling. I can't even imagine, I guess. And you mentioned waiting. I find that interesting. You know, you kind of letting go of control. I think it's also really easy to want, thinking that we have some... <laughs> thinking that we have some level of control, you know, I, I find myself, if I, if I get into it and then I 
that's something I've been very present to lately as well, where it's just like, oh, I have such a small speck of control in the grand scheme of everything that's going on that it's almost, it almost makes me laugh when I think I can control bigger situations. So I wonder, I mean, I know you've had a few examples of this, so I, you know, whatever you're comfortable to share, I don't know if it's about um, your life-threatening situation or, or what comes to mind for you, but control, the ego or the will, self-will that we're trying to direct our lives. I mean, certainly for me, God really is, is what allows me to just have faith and say, okay, like, I've got to put this up to you because I, I don't see the way out right now. So I guess two things, how, how do you best do that? And then also this idea of waiting, because of course you can feel impatient, right? It's like, okay, I've put this up to God. Now what? Like, I feel like I'm just hanging here a little bit. Where, where are you? Where, where's this answer that I'm looking for? Um, and I know it's God's timing and, and we can't, but I'm just curious how you kind of wait that out in such a challenging situation like the one you just described. How do you stay patient and release control? Yeah, it is, you know, controlling and fixing are something that often, well, that goes along with uh, codependence, right? Controlling and fixing and, and wanting to be the person who makes things right always. And um, when you're in a situation where it's very complicated, it's very interesting to relinquish control so you so you take yourself back from that then you can see the other people who are trying to control and it's funny because that was the situation that I was in when I was ill and that was the situation I was in when, when my husband was ill so that's the that's the situation we're in really we're still in it I mean here it's today and he's not feeling too bad uh, but I'm here and I still have no control. I have control over what I do and what I think and what I say. And that's where my control ends. And bringing us back from being that person who the one that other people can depend on because we have the answers if they ask us. But if they don't ask us, you know, like I have two kids who are grown. I'd love to tell them how I think their lives should go. <laughs> and I used to think about that. Oh, yeah. You know, spend my whole morning thinking about that. What a waste of time. So think of all the time that you get back when you're not, you know, thinking about what you can do in someone else's life. And all you're doing is avoiding something that you have to do in your own life. So usually it's very interesting because as soon as you find yourself thinking about someone, then you look around and say, what is it that I was supposed to be doing that I'm not doing? What is it that I'm hiding from? Or, you know, what is it that I'm running from putting off? What's difficult in my life that I'm not facing? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That discomfort, again, you you mentioned this sort of with the letting go of this. It's again, an uncomfortable feeling. And so we divert our attention. Like, oh, that's yeah, I like the sensation. Okay, what what are you doing that I don't like? So I can pick that apart instead. So that kind of idea. Yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, well, and then so how do we so then it's okay, put it to God in some sense to show you the way because sometimes 
I had this really interesting moment yesterday. I was at a spa actually the whole day because I just said, okay, enough. I need to be alone and just figure, get, put myself straight, as you kind of said. And I did this walking, these Turkish baths where they have cold, hot, cold, hot, and it's just up to your, uh, up to your knee. And so I was, I was sitting, standing there, walking through very slowly. And I just said, God, you know, what, what is the answer? Like, where, where am I supposed to go? What is it? And then I was going one step at a time and I just heard one step at a time. Like I just kept hearing one step at a time. And I thought, oh, okay, you know, like fine. <laughs> um, and it was really simple, but meaningful for me. But I guess, yeah, this idea of impatience, how do we, you know, I mean, if you get really bad news or something really profound and it's like, okay, how, what's my way out of this? What's my way forward? How do we remain patient to hear God? I know we need to get quiet, but sometimes I'm there going, please. It's almost this like really wanting, seeking this answer. How, once we've created space, what do we do? How do we wait for that? Oh, this practice that, that people have where they pray and meditate every day. Hmm. So that, that sets even no matter what, right? No matter what you, you do your best to, to do your prayer and your meditation, then it, it that's brings you to the moment. It brings you to the moment, no matter what is happening. And it gives you time to uh, have insight. It gives you time to have insight because sometimes, but even say you have a car accident, right? So you have a car accident. Say it's a fender bender, right? And, and so there you are, it's happened. It's best to breathe and to to sit and to reflect and wait until it's obvious that you should make a move. Because if you jump out of the car right away and something is broken or you're not, uh, or you're confused because uh, Everybody has whiplash and that causes a traumatic brain injury. So then, you know, you could be confused easily and probably are confused easily. Whatever movement you're going to make isn't going to be informed, fully informed of the situation. So no matter what you do, it's always best to, and, and this, it just takes I mean, I've been meditating since I was 13 and I'm 60, Wow! right? And I thought when I was 13 and my aunt taught me yoga she, for a summer and I went home with the yoga books, I thought I'm going to need this when I'm older. That's what I decided. I'm going to do this every day because there's something about this. I'm going to need it when I'm older. And uh, what it taught me, I think, is what I am like now, I'm, I can wait, I can breathe, I can respond when I see what's, what's going on. And that way, nothing's going to be jarring, you know, nothing's going. And so I have someone with me who's jarring and, and needy and, you know, needing and, uh, 
controlling and fixing and fretting and all of this stuff. They come to talk to me and I listen. I listen. I ask where, how I can be helpful. So that brings them to the moment. If they're doing all of this, you know, then if, if I'm saying, what can I do? Then all of a sudden, it's something in the moment. So that's all you want when you're, when you're with people and the things aren't going well. It's, okay, how can I be helpful? And then have that conversation that is present and make a plan and all of that stuff. Put your feet back on the ground, at least as much as can be done at the moment. Put your feet back on the ground. And then when you do have the conversation, it'll fly again. (laughs) It'll fly again because the person is upset and, and worried and all of that. But the whole idea is to breathe, to be present and to see where you can be helpful and not try to calm the person down. That doesn't work. I've had lots of, I have had lots of practice. It doesn't work to calm anybody down. It doesn't matter what you do, tidying and, you know, because I I was really good at cleaning the house. I'd make sure everything was clean and that didn't help either. (laughs) I mean, I like to have a clean house, but Cleaning the house is not going to make your life more manageable in the moment that someone needs you. So the the best thing to do is to be present and to to be there, listen, and then make a plan and then move forward. And giving yourself the time you need, giving the person some time that they didn't think they had, Right, because they don't think they have any time. Otherwise, they wouldn't be controlling and fixing and fretting and worrying. And yeah, they feel lost. Right, they feel like they have no way forward, but they do. They yeah. can. And you're creating that space, I think, in a sense. Yeah. it's like you're not yeah. listening, which is an action, but you're not actually cleaning the kitchen you're just standing with them saying what can we do right now how can I help what's up right now that we can just sit together and chat this out and back to your idea of confession in a sense like you're actually mm-hmm. not that you're a priest but sort of that you're holding that space I think yeah so right and that's yeah and that's really something that we can do in the moment we can really do that and it's not harmful it's not harmful. So, you know, do no harm. That's what the physicians say. It's not harmful. What about expectations? Because you mentioned, you sort of alluded to it a little bit earlier when you said, you know, about, about your kids. I mean, we want good for our family. It's not necessarily always a bad thing that we have these expectations, but it's not great if we impose them, I suppose. It's really good to talk about expectations because expectations are future resentments. Hmm. When you, <laughs> so they are very related. They're very related. And it can be as simple as you're playing a board game with your husband and some friends. And you're sitting beside your husband and you want 
So you, you need something from him because this is a sharing game and he won't give it to you, but it's a game, right? It's a game. And instead of just, instead of just letting him have his own hand and tell you what it is he's willing to give and not, you have an expectation that he's going to help you. Right, because you're his wife, even though this is a game. So these ex- these expectations can really get out of hand. Where even in a game, a golf game, you know, um, maybe your husband isn't carrying your clubs for you because they're heavy or whatever. But maybe you haven't asked, right? Maybe you could have a caddy, or you could get one of those wheelie carts and put it on the back. There's lots of ways to do that without having expectations that others take on what you need. That's a really, that's a really troublesome thought. And we all do it. We all have expectations and those expect, and we hope that maybe it's okay to have them. But if we really think deeply about it, uh, it's best not to have any, none. Yeah. Well, and then you said something really powerful, though. You said asking for what you need, though, right? So it's not, the two aren't together in the sense that, okay, it doesn't mean that you have to, I don't know, not voice the fact that you need a caddy or some means of moving your, you know, your clubs. It's like, okay, you have this need, but you're open to how it gets resolved. Like, it's not, it doesn't have to be your husband that carries them. And, oh my, yeah, it's very dangerous that, you know, you can go down the road of, trying to get back at them and that's where you know people try to get revenge or you know oh i'll show you kind of thing and that's dangerous territory to be in i think so yeah yeah because you don't you don't want to be involved in the outcome you only want to be you only want to recognize what you need and then uh put that out in the world to see if it can to see if your need is uh legitimate and whether it can be resolved, but you don't know how it's going to be resolved. And that's not your business. Hmm. It'll be resolved. However, it's resolved. Cause this is the world we're talking about. We don't, we don't have control of that. Mm-hmm. Hmm, back to control. Yeah, it's interesting. Just being very clear on what we want. That part is okay. We can be deliberate about that. Hey, here's what I need. Mm-hmm. But then it's, that's the point of releasing. Whereas I think a lot of people get caught up. It's like, here's what I want. And this is how it has to be. And this is how it's going to go. And so the, the control extends yeah. beyond where our control actually is. I mean, yeah, you know, right, it's definitely a line. I can't, the wisdom to know, you know, the and then, you know, yes, exactly. Like, well, there's all these people that are trained in the world. So there's, you know, uh, there's lawyers. And so if, if you have a problem and you need it fixed, then instead of, trying to control it and fix it yourself, then you go to someone who is trained to do the work that it is that you need and have a conversation with them so that you can see possibility and don't block yourself off from uh, sharing what it is that you need. Spread it around the world so that you can be more likely have success. Hmm. Yeah, so really, I, that's one thing I really learned when I was, was ill was that uh, although it was my illness, it wasn't. <laughs> I thought it was my illness. I oh. thought 
I thought I was suffering with my illness. I wasn't. Everyone who knew me, everyone who knows me was suffering with my illness. It wasn't mine personally. And it was something that was happening to me for sure. But it wasn't my, it wasn't mine. And if I'm not aware of the impact of that on the broad impact that that would have on everyone, then I'm not, then I'm not, then I'm reacting. I'm not being in the moment, right? I'm reacting because I'm thinking that this is mine, mine, and I'm going to decide what happens here. I'm going to decide the outcome. Yeah, that's, that's a really, that's really, uh, that has to be looked at really quickly and changed. And I was really fortunate because I did decide that I was going to die and that was going to be okay. I decided that. And then I went home and I told my kids and they looked shocked and hurt. And I realized this wasn't my decision that I had been overstepping what it is that I'm um, responsible for. And that, because I always wondered why would people go through all of the pain they go through to get better when they have been hurt? You know what? I used to wonder that because I'd never really been hurt that much. So I just didn't know what it was that would motivate people to be to do what they could, whatever they could, to still be there for their loved ones. And that was the moment that I realized that that was the only answer for me, was I had to let go of the outcome. Whatever the outcome was, was up to God. And all I could do was be grateful for the moment and be grateful for everything that was occurring as it went along, whether it worked or not, because whatever the outcome was going to be, I was going to be grateful for. And I decided that if I was going to die, I was going to be grateful for the life I had and the moments that I had up to my death, that this wasn't going to be something to fear, that this was going to be, uh, it's inevitable. It was going to be inevitable because it wasn't something I have control over. So let it go, let it happen, be in the moment and be with everyone in a, in a loving way. And that's all you can do. You got to let go of it all. If a doctor wants to, you know, get involved and, and have answers, well, then that's good. That's good. Give them a, you know, let, let people in, let people in. If someone wants to come and help me, let them in. If they want to clean my bed because I don't have the strength, let them let them do it. Don't it was so funny. So when I was quite sick, but I was at home, I guess I'd moved home by this time. And my front garden, because I'd renovated my house, my front garden was like such a mess. And so we hired a gardener to fix it. And my neighbor who I have, I don't have, he's, he doesn't have the other half of my house because I live in a semi, but he's right next door. And he would come over and look at my garden and he didn't like the way it was done. So then he'd move the plants around when the gardener was gone. And I had such, 
<laughs> I had such a, a fun like month of him uh, moving the rocks around and moving the plants around. <laughs> and then he put some of the plants that we had in his garden. Oh, it was really funny. He just moved it all around. And I was like, okay, it's, it's all good. Like, I don't really care. I mean, it's a good, it, the plants are going to grow wherever they are. It's kind of cool now. They have some of our shrubs and trees and <laughs> so am I. And then I think uh, my husband came home eventually and he asked me, you know, about our garden. I said, well, <laughs> it kind of was. It wasn't really my project, you know. It was, it was okay, a I mean, joint. It was a joint. It was a joint project. <laughs> but I wasn't, I wasn't in any. Uh, the outcome wasn't important to me. I hoped that the plants would live, and that come again the next year. And I asked for some plants. I like thyme. I like thyme because mm-hmm. it smells really nice and it goes along the ground. So I asked for some plants, but if he didn't think that they were placed right, he put them in different places. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> Must like, have driven him nuts, though. <laughs> uh, it's a great, I think it's a great story, though. To, I mean, to, so to him, it was important enough to, I suppose, put some of his own effort into it. And I, I mean, this does get me interested in when to, what the right decision is when it comes to, for example, medical help. So even with my car accident, for example, I really, I had some doctors telling me, nope, you need glasses and your vision is just going to be permanently affected because of the way you hit your head. And like, this is just, you know, we're going to manage, we're going to symptom manage. And then I had, I thank God, got a referral from a chiropractor actually, who worked on head trauma. And he sent me to a great guy in Guelph, Dr. Quaid, who does visual therapy for head trauma or just kids with vision issues. I mean, it's fantastic. And they, he also sent me to a Dr. Comer who's in Burlington and the two of them, one works with hormones um, and Dr. Quaid works with visual therapy. And they both are of the opinion that, no, we're gonna rehabilitate you to your baseline. I mean, we're gonna bring you back to, you know, what you were like before the accident. Actually, we can even make you better. You know, you can, this can even, you can be better off because we're being conscious about this. I think if I wasn't as, I don't know, stubborn or tenacious, I don't know what word, but I, I really just said, look, I, I don't just want to be on drugs. I want somebody to help me get better. That I want to be better. I don't want to be stuck in this moment in time from the car accident. I mean, at the, I was 26 at the time. It's like, I'm not going to accept this for whatever, another 50 years. Like, that's not right. Mm-hmm. In my head, that's how I had, what I had decided anyhow. <laughs> um, so I guess for me, it was high stakes, you know, so maybe for him, the garden was important enough, but I guess I want, so I wonder how do we judge that? Because if I had let that first doctor in, I would have been in a very different position. You know, I was like bed, I I was in a dark room for six months. So Mm -hmm. if I had accepted the first help, I think I would have been in really poor shape. Whereas I kind of kept, I kept pushing for a better resolution because I felt like there was one so how do we yeah. in terms of especially health I wonder it goes back to actually what you said about taking personal yeah. responsibility to some degree so I'm just mm-hmm. curious about about that for you because I know you you did a guided visualization and you really took it upon yourself to some degree to try and 
influence also the, before your surgery, if I have that correct? Well, I, I got um, three different, I went to three different hospitals in three different parts of uh, North America to talk about what the plan might be. So I definitely went wherever I could to find answers. Okay, so it's and still it's still important to I don't know get multiple opinions or seek out what feels right. Feels yes, right. yes, that's right. You gather gather uh, information. There's nothing wrong with gathering information, hmm. especially for yourself. Yeah, I think and I, I accepted help. I accepted help to help me gather that information. Hmm. when people wanted to now the people who wanted to help some of them wanted to fix it you know some of them were pretty big on controlling and fixing but controlling and fixing isn't always it isn't always a problem it depends what it is you're doing you know if you if there's someone who knows the system and they're going to help you navigate it that's that's a good thing if, if they start to get in the way of the doctors because they think they know, well, maybe that's not such a good thing. So, so you just have to be, you have to be your best advocate. I mean, at some points when I was ill, I was so sick that I wasn't really very present. And so, but even then I didn't die. No, I mean, I was... I was down 30 pounds anyway. And my poor son and his wife were with me. My husband had gone on a business trip and my electrolytes were getting out of balance because I had lost so much fluid in my system, right? And so then I don't think I was getting really a lot of nutrition to my brain. So I, I really wasn't very with it. And they were doing their best to they kept going and buying blood pressure cups because they'd take my blood pressure and they couldn't get it. But it was because my blood pressure was so low that I, that I was in danger of having a heart attack, right? And so, but I wasn't worried. I just was, you know, doing what I could that day. It went to the doctor and then he put me in emergency and they made me better. So. Even when it was, if I hadn't gone to the doctor, then I probably would have died. But I was being, I was being followed, even though i had had the surgery, the cancer was gone, but I had a complication. The surgeon saw me, I can't remember. I think it was every week. Yeah, I'd come into the, yeah, I'd come into his office for an appointment every week wow. for months. And he didn't know what to do, but he didn't, he didn't put me down. He didn't pass me on to someone else. He just, he just kept doing what he could, maintaining, like a, trying to maintain my life while this was figured out. And so uh, I didn't, I wasn't angry at him. I didn't fire him as my doctor and go to someone else. I stayed there and it just became clear what I had to do over time. 
um, I don't know, it, it worked out fine. And I did get better. And you got better. So there's a there's a way forward. It's not it's not something that you can tell someone else because in the moment you're just trying to understand what's going to happen and take the advice of those that you feel are doing what they can for your best interest. I mean, I'm really interested in what you did to get better because I, uh, as a massage therapist, I started working with a laser, a cold laser, and mm -hmm. I've helped people with traumatic brain injury by um, shining light on their brainstem, really, and not sometimes on the brainstem because you were hit on your forehead, you would shine the light on your forehead as well for rehabilitation. Um, I can tell you more about that at any time, but I'm, I'm very curious about what you did and the people that you saw here, because I think having professionals that are here and do good work are very much worth knowing. Yeah, well, and it's a, it was a wait, right? I mean, the Ontario healthcare system, I mean, I waited a year and a year and five months after my accident to see the hormonal specialist. So, and that's kind of what started me. I'm actually eating a pretty much carnivore diet now, thanks to really Michaela, I think. I mean, it was started by Dr. Comer who mentioned keto. And so he said, you know, there's a tendency after brain trauma to be um, susceptible to dementia down the road. And my grandmother has dementia. And so I thought there's no way that I'm letting that be, you know, I, I want to do whatever I can. Um, mm -hmm. so he has suggested keto diet and then I sort of have just slowly, and then I heard Gayla talk about it and some other doctors, Dr. Sandino. Um, and, and so that's where I'm at right now, but I found it interesting. Oh, good. You're, you're eating, um, only lamb, I think, you, which is interesting because I, my stomach is still not used to, I've been eating mainly beef and like, and liver and, but I, I'm not used to it yet. To be honest, yes. My, and how long have you been doing that? Oh, just maybe three weeks. So very, very new, oh, okay. pure carnivore. I did a three-day water fast, mm -hmm. uh, which was actually very. I felt so clear and spiritually. It, it was really a spiritual experience. Actually, I don't know. Have you ever done fasting? Like, yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 It is. It's. It's interesting. So you know, I think. Well, I'm not sure, but I think that if you're if what you're eating is causing some trouble, then when you stop eating it and you become really clear, like you do in a fast, that's an indication that you got to make some changes in your diet. But um, fasting is, I still fast, you know, I don't eat until the afternoon. And then I eat again in the early, well, in the late afternoon. And, and that's it. I eat probably in a window of four hours. And mm -hmm. And so I, I have fasted for days on end, but now I just do more, I don't know what you call this. Uh, I don't know if there's probably a name for it, but anyway, a very short period of time every day, because I know that it's really good for, well, it's really good. You have to wait for your stomach to growl, first of all, right? Because that's the cleaning, sweeping system of your intestines is done when your stomach growls. Oh, I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, isn't that cool? 
Yeah, so it's really a good and happy noise to get because that means you're ready to eat. But until you hear that noise, you're not ready to eat. Your system isn't ready. It hasn't done its cleaning yet. <laughs> That's actually yeah. interesting. I, I, know, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's an interesting thing. I, I was just so conditioned to at least eat twice a day, you know, and, and this after the fast, I just realized now, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of once or twice, I, I'm still figuring it out. I, I wouldn't say I'm totally set because it's such a new way of eating. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm curious. About I stopped those. eating. I stopped eating when I was 40 years old. I stopped eating uh, wheat, which was a lot of things. I, I took wheat, anything that had wheat in it. I took it out of my diet. And I went from being kind of foggy brained. My mom died of dementia. My sister is dying of dementia. And she's only 67. So I and, and when I was 40, I was starting to get so my memory wasn't great and my train of thought wasn't great. So I'd forget in conversations what we were talking about. Like, so it wasn't good. And um, so I gave up and I had given up sugar. That didn't help. I gave up meat. That didn't help. So I'd given up different things as I was, cause I'd always have trouble with my digestion. I'd always had trouble. I'm Irish and I have a celiac gene. Hmm. So it took me a while to figure out what was causing all my trouble. But when I gave up wheat and I was sleeping all the time, oh my God, I was so tired. I would sleep at the drop of a hat. I'd go to put my shoes on, I'd sit down and I'd be asleep. And then I'd wake up and go out the door. Like I was just, it was like I had narcolepsy. I was sleeping all the time. The day after I gave up wheat, I was awake. I thought, oh my God, it's definitely wheat. And then from there, it was all of gluten and then it was all the sugar. And so, you know, by the time Michaela had changed her diet, I had cut back on many, many things that I was eating. And it took her a while. It took her till she was about 22 to be aware enough, you know, because when you're a child, it's, you have your own ideas of, well, you can't convince other people what to do. And so, once she was 22, I took her to a naturopath again. I, I'd taken her to many, many people she called quacks. And, <laughs> and I took her to this one person and she said, you know, they want me to eat lemons. And oranges had always given her arthritis. So how were lemons going to work? So that's when she decided, I'm just going to eat broccoli and chicken. And so she went back to just eating those two things. And many things started to get better. And that was her first indication that hmm, maybe diet has something to do with it. But you know, I when she was a little kid and had arthritis, I told the doctors at Sick Kids Hospital that there were certain foods that made her swell. And they said, they kind of said, they wrote it in her file, but they they just kind of said, that's nice. Thanks for telling us. But they, they had no interest in, in diet. And because Michaela had been so sick, I was really curious about what was going to make her better. And so I asked her grandparents, she went to her grandparents for the summer and I said, no sugar. You know, I wanted no sugar in your diet. And they, you know, used to always walk to the store for ice cream every day. And so I really put a, I really put a screw into their summer plans by, (laughs) by doing this. 
But, you know, even though I knew it was food, I didn't know it was all car carbohydrates. That is just so radical. It's so mm -hmm. radical. But it saved my, I have arthritis in my thumbs and knees. I was going to have to get a different house because I couldn't go up and down the stairs. And I was going to Croatia to walk with my sister. And it was right in a break in the, in the book tour. It was May. It was probably around this time of year. It was. And I thought if I'm going to walk in Croatia, I need to do something about my knees. And Michaela had just gone on the carnivore diet and she had just found that her arthritis was starting to go away. So I gave up the last few vegetables I had. And by that time I was eating lettuce, olives, and meat kind of, it was really almost carnivore. And so I gave up the last, and in two weeks, my knees started to feel a little better. And I thought, okay, well, this is what it is then. And so now I still live in my three-story house. I can walk up and down the stairs. I still have a little bit of discomfort in my knees, but it's nothing. My thumbs, I wasn't able to hold hands or put my hands in my pockets or comb my hair. And now I'm still not strong in my thumbs, but they, I can do all my art. I can do whatever I want. And so, you know, this carnivore diet, it's, it's, uh, for me, it, it's a lifesaver, really. It, it, I think that I am alive because of it, because this cancer I had was supposed to grow and kill me in 11 months. And it didn't. And I think it was because I was not eating any carbohydrates. So it was slowed down because yeah. the Hungarians, right? The Hungarian doctors, paleo medicina, they, they take people who've had serious cancer and they put them on a carnivore diet. And so, yeah. yeah. And I have just been diagnosed with lupus and because my eyes are dry and I have more plaque in my teeth and I, I wasn't understanding. I was just using eye drops. I didn't know why these things were happening, but these are signs of lupus. And I got a new family doctor and he saw that my white blood cell count had been down since 2014. And so then, and I only have one kidney now and lupus attacks the organs. And so he was concerned about why my little, why my blood cells, white blood cells were low in terms of that I was more at risk for trouble because I have one kidney. But what he discovered was that I had markers for lupus. And so now I've seen a lupus doctor. He said, I have very mild lupus. And I said, yeah, but if I eat a North American diet, I imagine that I would have all of the symptoms of lupus. I think I've been controlling. I've never had an episode of, because it affects your lungs and your heart and your kidneys. I have had no episodes of lupus troubles. And I think it's because of the carnivore diet. So I think it has saved me from cancer. And I think it has saved me from lupus wow. and from having celiac disease. Like, so I'm okay. I can't believe it. I'm okay by the grace of God, really. Yeah. Like and really. Like lamb. So lamb. Your lamb. lamb. Me and, yeah. Me and, yeah. And you know, it's it, so Jesus is portrayed as the lamb, you know, in yeah. there. <laughs> and now all I eat are little lambs and I don't know what to think about this. It's just so, it's so, uh, I, I don't know. Life is very strange. 
and you never know where you're going to be and what's going to happen and you just have to take it one day at a time <laughs> i think that's a, a great send-off to take it i mean i there's so much more i love to hear but i think that's take things one day at a time is probably a lovely uh <laughs> final, yes final <laughs> I think. It's so nice to talk to you. It's really, really fun. And yeah. I wish you all the best with your marriage and your health. And the carnivore diet is, is a great, uh, it's a great diet. And I, uh, I can't say, you know, I've said what I could say about it. I think that it's a life-saving move. Yeah. That's yeah. what I think. Completely agreed. And for anyone that wants more info, I think Paul Saladino's work is, I mean, he's a doctor, so he'll get into the science of it more than I certainly can. And I think he's Yeah. And I, co I contacted him. He, he, he talked to me. I, I had a couple yeah. of consultations with him. Yeah. Yeah. So he, and he talks through the sustainability piece, because of course there's the argument of, you know, it being unsustainable to eat animals. Yeah. I mean, but so he's, I think, more of the source to uh, sort out that. Yeah. I, well, we know we know that the way that we farm is is uh, has to be updated. You know, we we've taken the animals off the farm, or or we've put them in certain places and not in others. But really, they have to be everywhere. And these huge grain fields, we have to rethink all of that. And the sooner, the better. Yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, oh, I feel like there's so many other topics we didn't even get to touch upon. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you do any tapping, but I've been finding that tapping. Oh, yeah, I like tapping. That's that's saving my life because I've been having some sinus stuff. And it's uh -huh. meant, emotionally meant to be about, um, it can be about grief. It can be about anger. I mean, the, the idea is that, of course, it's trapped emotion, right? In the yeah, and it, dairy really causes trouble in your sinuses. Eating yeah. any dairy products, yeah. Well, I, I mean, not for the past, I don't know. 20 days or so but I'm sure it's still it's a lifetime of uh yeah well yeah. it'll take a while for you to recover from the other diet it'll take a while so yeah. uh, just stick with it yeah yeah well uh, I'm so it's it's really been my pleasure I'm so grateful that you dedicated your morning to spend time with me I uh well thanks for step for reaching out to me that was wonderful that you did that I really